Let's take uh, the Word of God this morning, and if you please take your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. This chapter is very important for many reasons. All the chapters in the Bible are important, but this is part of our of church history. And in Acts chapter 7, the result of this sermon from Stephen would be his death. And in this message, we've seen that was brought about because of what Stephen was being accused of. If you remember, Stephen in chapter 6 had been accused of speaking blasphemous words against God, against Moses, against the law, against the temple. And at the beginning of chapter 7, the high priest uh, brings Stephen and he says, Are these things so? And from there, Stephen is going to preach what we find in the book of Acts is the longest recorded sermon. Now we know at one occasion that Paul preached till midnight, so I think it was a little longer than this. But there's a reason why this sermon is recorded for us here. There are several parts or three um, men that are emphasized as part of the history of Israel. We have from verse 2 down to verse 8, an emphasis on Abraham and God's covenant with Abraham, which we dealt with that a few weeks ago. The second part is centered on Joseph. And the third part is centered on Moses. Now it's important as we examine this chapter and this sermon to think of this sermon in light of the conclusion that Stephen comes to which is found in verse 51 through 53. And so it is important for us as we look and read through this sermon that Stephen preached that his desire is to arrive and to point out what we find in the conclusion, verse 51, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. And here it is, As your fathers did, so do ye. And in this sermon, Stephen has pointed out that their fathers, in the history of Israel, displayed the same resistance and animosity and opposition to either God's message or God's messengers, and if you would, God's plan. In verse 52, which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted, and they have slain them which show before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels, and have not kept them. Now in this great sermon... We looked at an overview of this sermon and we looked particularly at Abraham from verse 2 down to verse 8 and we talked about the covenant of circumcision and the covenant that God made with Abraham and there's a reason why Stephen addresses that. And he moves, as we noted here, from Abraham he's going to move right to Joseph. Now he's going to mention both Isaac and Jacob in verse 8. Let's pick it up in verse 8. And he gave, he God gave him Abraham a covenant of the covenant of circumcision and so Abraham begat Isaac and circumcised him the eighth day and Isaac begat Jacob and Jacob begat the 12 patriarchs. In verse 9 and the patriarchs moved with envy sold Joseph into Egypt but God was with him. 
and delivered him out of all his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all of his house. Now there came a dearth over all the land of Egypt, and Canaan, and great affliction. And our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was corn in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first, and at the second time, Joseph was made known to his brethren, and Joseph's kindred was made known unto Pharaoh. Then sent Joseph, and called his father Jacob to him, and all his kindred, threescore and fifteen souls. So Jacob went down into Egypt, and died he and our fathers, and were carried over into Shechem, and laid in the sepulcher that Abraham bought for a sum of money of the sons of Emor, the father of Shechem. But when the time of the promise drew nigh, which God had, uh, had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose, which knew not Joseph. And from there it's going to turn our attention onto Moses. But here we're thinking about Joseph. And in a sense, Stephen in this sermon, he goes from Abraham with a short mention of Isaac and Jacob, and he goes and speaks of Joseph and turns the attention of the Sanhedrin council towards Joseph. Now, the question is, uh, there is much, as we read throughout the book of Genesis, there's much that the Bible says about Isaac. There's much that the Bible says even about Jacob, but Stephen emphasizes Joseph. And so the question I have is, why did Stephen take the time to speak at length about Joseph, to single Joseph out? Why not speak at length about Isaac and about Jacob? And it is rather easy for us to determine why Stephen brings Joseph up in this sermon. Remember that Stephen is going to arrive at a conclusion which we just read from verse 51 to verse 53. And what jo Stephen does here is he shows the Sanhedrin council that they are just like their fathers. That they display the same characteristics that the patriarchs displayed towards Joseph. I would like to bring your attention to verse 9. There's a lot that's packed right there in verse 9. The Bible says, And the patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph in Egypt, but God was with him. I want to bring your attention to that expression, but God was with him. With him. There's a lot packed in verse 9, but I would like to bring a message this morning that I've entitled, But God Was With Him. As we think about the life of Joseph, and we're going to go to Genesis chapter 37 in just a moment, but we think about Joseph, Stephen brings about the character of Joseph and this person who, by the way, they are very familiar with. And as I've mentioned, as we read through this sermon, those men who were part of the Sanhedrin council, at no point during Stephen's sermon could they say, that's not true. That's false. As a matter of fact, throughout this entire sermon, he refers back to Scripture. He refers back to Israel's history in some very important details. And at no point could any of those men of the Sanhedrin council say, you're wrong, that's not true. As a matter of fact, that's not what they do. Their only response is to run up on Stephen, to drive him out of the city, and to stone him to death. That is their response. At no point could they say, you're wrong, you're misrepresenting this history. No, Stephen goes about to show 
And really, why is it that these men that are part of the Sanhedrin Council have rejected Jesus Christ? And what we find is that nothing has changed. Uh, indeed, as we think about the gospel and those who oppose the gospel, many people would have us believe that, well, we are today in the 21st century, and the reason why people oppose the gospel and reject Jesus Christ is because they are educated. Is because we are in the 21st century and now we are smarter, we know better, and therefore we don't need this whole thing that people used to accept, a hook, line, and sinker. But indeed, as we look from the inception of the gospel, when the gospel was preached... It was opposed from its very beginning. So unbelief does not pertain to the 21st century. Unbelief is as old as the gospel. And Stephen goes about to show them that what they are doing can actually, the same thing can be traced throughout Israel's history. Their response to Jesus Christ is the same response they had of Joseph. And there is a summary of this, and I believe we're going to learn some important things here from Stephen's sermon. Just from verse 9, the Bible says, The patriarchs, notice, moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him and delivered him. I want to bring your attention to four things here that we find that Stephen is addressing. And by the way, it's important for us to understand that he is talking to men who know the Bible. Uh, as a matter of fact, some of the Pharisees who were part of this council had memorized, most of them, the entirety of the, uh, of the first five books of the Bible. And they would be familiar with everything that Joseph is saying. And so, uh, as he's saying those words, it's important for us to delve into those words and to say, as he is speaking, this is what they're thinking as they're going back to the Old Testament Scripture. And the first thing we consider is, first of all, as we look at this, we are brought to uh, Joseph, and the, ba the, the Bible says that the patriarchs, moved with envy, sold Joseph. What happened? Let's go back, if you would, to Genesis 37. And I want to ask this question, why did Joseph's brothers envy him? What was it? in the life of Joseph that caused those brothers to sell him, to really conspire against him, to talk among one another and to say, let's kill him. What was it that prompted this hatred and animosity for jo towards Joseph? Notice Genesis 37 verse 1. And Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger and in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren... And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah, and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. And so right off the bat, we see that Joseph stands out. Among his brethren, he stands out. As it is said later, he was, from his father in the final blessing, he was separate from his brethren. From uh, the very time when we see him as a 17-year-old young man, he is separate from his brethren. He brings the evil report. But notice as we move on through the story, uh, that is not what caused them to sell him. Notice verse 3. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than all of his children because he was the son of his old age and he made him a coat of many colors. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all of his brethren, they hated him and could not speak 
peaceably unto him. A great family atmosphere, I'm sure, in that house. Verse 5. And Joseph, and here is where we're starting to get into trouble. Dreamed a dream, and he told it his brethren, and they hated him yet the more. So they already hated him, but something that Joseph said caused those brothers to hate him yet the more. Uh, Something that Joseph said is going to push those brothers uh, to do something uh, that really is unimaginable as we think about uh, a family. He said unto them, Here I pray you this dream which I have dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose and also stood upright, and behold, your sheaf stood round about and made obeisance to my sheaf. And his brethren said to him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us? Or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. So Joseph was already different than his brothers at a young age. But then Joseph has the first dream here that we read where Joseph had a sheaf of corn and all of his brothers each also had their own sheaf of corn. And Joseph's sheaf stood upright while all of the brothers' sheaves bowed down to Joseph's sheaf of corn. And Joseph's brothers here knew what the dream meant. As a matter of fact, they interpret the dream in verse 8. Shalt thou indeed reign over us? There's yet a second dream. And in the the second dream, in verse 9, he dreamed yet another dream and told it his brethren and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and um, and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and to his brethren. And his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren need come to bow down ourselves to thee, uh, to the earth? And here, uh, in this particular dream, the sun and the moon and the stars bowed down to Joseph. And again, the interpretation of the dream is clear from the father who says that, Are you saying that, Myself and your mother and your brethren are going to bow down before you? So what do we learn from this? Because ultimately this is what uh, what happened in this family when Joseph, if you would, who was already separate from his brethren, and God says, God gave him a dream, and he reveals this dream, relays this dream to his family members, they know that this dream means that one day they're all going to bow down to Joseph. And so Joseph, in a sense, he established himself as superior to his brethren in this dream. You see, Joseph, in this sense was a unique person. In other words, God would do something. Now at that time, we know how the story ends, but they don't know at this time. But God is going to elevate Joseph above his brethren, and they seem here to understand that. And understand, you remember later, when Jacob goes and tells Joseph to go check on his brothers, you remember what they say when they see him coming down the, uh, down the road? They say... We shall see what shall become of his dream. You see, the motivation for those brothers to try to, to conspire either to kill him, eventually to sell him as a slave, was the dreams of Joseph, which set 
Joseph apart, if you would, as a unique person, as one to whom they would one day bow down. It's interesting that Stephen brings this account up as he's, as he's uh, talking about how Joseph was treated. Uh, the Bible says he was envied of his uh, brothers. But we find here that what we learn is that Joseph established himself as superior uh, to his brethren by virtue of this dream. And what Stephen is, is showing them uh, by way of conclusion as we see in the end he says, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so also do ye. And he says, which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And so he goes back to this account, but I am interested in what is it that happened? What is it that Joseph said that caused those brothers to envy him? And it was his uniqueness. Joseph is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ as we've clearly established. And Jesus, by the way, he himself has set himself as a unique person. Now, uh, there is no doubt that Joseph is not the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is uh, certainly a representation of the Lord Jesus Christ, but anything that represents the Lord Jesus Christ always falls short. But I'm trying to show you the working of what caused the men who are part of the Sanhedrin Council to move against the Lord Jesus Christ and to crucify him. You know why they did that? Because Jesus Christ set himself as a unique person. As a matter of fact, if we study throughout the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we will find that Jesus Christ set himself as a unique person. Let me quote you a few verses from the Lord Jesus Christ. In John 3.13, Jesus said, No man hath ascended up into heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. Heaven. Jesus set himself as unique and set apart from everybody else. In John 8 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. In John 8 23, he says, Ye are from beneath, but I am from above. In John 10 7, Jesus said, I am the door. In John 30, uh, 10 30, he says, I and my Father are one. In John 14 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. In John 14 9, Jesus said, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. Understand that Jesus Christ established the fact that he was a unique person. Indeed, there is no one like him before him or that would come after him. Yet they, uh, these religious leaders always questioned his claim. As a matter of fact, there's a, a question that keeps coming back as we read the Gospels. Let me give you a few examples. In Matthew 21, 23, the Bible says, When he was come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching and said, by what authority doest thou these things? And who gave the authority? You see, the constant question that keeps coming up during the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is, Who do you think you are? Who sent you? By whose authority are you doing this? Always questioning his person in the same sense that Joseph's brothers questioned Joseph, Who do you think you are? They always questioned the Lord Jesus Christ after Jesus had said, the son, uh, he says, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. You remember what the religious people said in Mark 2 7? The scribes reason in their hearts, Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? 
Who can forgive sins but God only? They're always asking themselves, Who is He? Again in Mark eleven twenty eight, And they come again to Jerusalem, and as He was walking in the temple, there come to Him the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, and say unto Him, By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority to do these things? Again in Luke seven forty nine, And they that sat at meat with Him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? You see, just as Joseph was rejected because of what he declared, so was our Lord Jesus Christ rejected because of what he declared. In this case, Joseph declared his dream. That's what caused them to move with envy against him. That's what caused them, if you would, for the hatred to grow and to grow and to grow because of what Joseph declared about what would happen about himself and where his brothers would be with respect to him. And Jesus Christ did the same thing. As he makes declarations about himself, we find that the Bible says they were moved with envy against him in the same way that they were moved with envy against Joseph. And so we ask ourselves here, what would cause? What is the, what, why uh, does the world have trouble with Jesus Christ? And I would say to you, just in the same way that Joseph's brothers had trouble with Joseph, so does the world have trouble with Jesus Christ. Indeed, isn't it interesting that people do not mind talking about Jesus Christ as a great teacher? People do not mind talking about Jesus Christ as a great prophet. People do not mind talking about Jesus Christ as a great example uh, uh, set forth for our lives. But as soon as you say that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh, that Jesus Christ died to pay for all of our sin debt, then you begin to have this question, who do you think He is? You see, what causes the world to stand and oppose the declaration of the Lord Jesus Christ is because of what He said about Himself. And so we see, first of all, the declaration of Joseph. But then secondly, I think we have to dig a little deeper as we think about, secondly, the opposition of the patriarchs. If we go back to Acts chapter 7, the Bible says, and the patriarchs, the Bible says, notice, moved... With, what's the word? Envy. Now that's exactly what Genesis 37 tells us. They move with envy against Him. And so, the first question was, well, what's the declaration? You see, the problem, the reason why Joseph's brother sold him is because of what he declared. The reason why the Jews of the day moved against Christ is because of what He declared. They ascribed blasphemies to the Lord Jesus Christ just as they ascribed blasphemies to Stephen. But we have to dig a little deeper and ask ourselves, what is the root cause of the patriarch's rejection of Joseph? What is the root cause? Where does uh, uh, this, they sold him, they were conspiring about killing him, where does that come from? Stephen tells us plainly that they moved with envy. Scripture tells us what happened in the heart and the mind of Joseph's brothers and father. And herein lies the root cause of their betrayal. If you go back, let's go back for just a moment to Genesis 37. Notice with me what happened. After the second dream, Joseph spoke. And notice at first, Jacob rebukes Joseph. 
But notice what happens after, as, as, jo, Jacob is asking questions, but then notice what happens in verse 10, 11. He told it to his father and to his brethren, and his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee, to the earth? And his brethren envied him. There it is. So the dream, right, uh, stirred within them this envy, but the Bible says, but his father observed the saying. Therein lies the difference in response. Now, was Jacob shocked by what Joseph said? Of course he was. He First of all, he rebuked him. But ultimately, the brothers envied him for what was said. But Jacob, on the other hand, he observed Joseph's saying. Now, why would uh, Jacob observe his saying? Well, because Jacob has had his own encounters with God. And so he knows that this is within the realm of possibility that God would speak to Joseph and that Joseph has given us a message that comes directly from God. And so Jacob says, I don't understand it. I'm not sure how it's going to happen, but this must be from God. And so he's observing the saying. But the response of those brethren is that they, were, they moved with envy. What was the root cause? For the Jews wanting to crucify the Lord Jesus Christ. If you turn with me to Matthew chapter 27, the Bible tells us. And by the way, this is identified by those who are observing what was taking place. The conflict between the Jews and the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 27. Notice with me verse 17. Matthew 27 verse 17 and 18, therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will ye that I release unto you, Barabbas, or Jesus, which is called Christ? Verse 18, for he knew that for what? For envy they had delivered him. Joseph's brothers moved with envy. Stephen is recounting the story. He says, you remember... Uh, the patriarchs, they move with envy against Joseph. And indeed, as we think about the Lord Jesus Christ and the declarations He made, the Bible also tells us it was plain to everybody who could observe it. Even Pilate said, I know that they're delivering Him because of envy. It's plain to see. Same thing is said in Mark 15.10. This is again how you, you see the Jews responding even to the preaching of Peter. If you go to Acts chapter 5, you remember we already looked at this passage, but in Acts chapter 5 and verse 17, remember that uh, Peter here, as he's been told not to speak, not to preach in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice verse 17 of Acts 5, Then the high priest rose up, and all they that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and were Filled with indignation. The word indignation is the same root word you find for the word envy. The word indignation, the word envy means to be hot. In other words, it's something that rises up within you. It's a passion. It's a zeal. And uh, it is uh, aligned with here indignation and envy. It's, it's really the, the same word in its root as you think. It's, it's just stirring within them. In John 3.19, you remember Jesus Christ as He had spoken to Nicodemus. He said in John 3.19, This is the condemnation. That light has come into the world 
And men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. So understand when Jesus Christ declared who he was. What he was indeed doing, he was declaring the sinfulness of those scribes and those Pharisees and those religious leaders by virtue of his declarations. You remember on one occasion that had brought a woman who uh, had uh, uh, been brought, uh, having committed the act of adultery and they bring her. You remember what Jesus said to those religious people? He said, he that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. The Bible says they were all convicted by their own conscience and they all laughed from the older to the younger. And uh, we ask ourselves here, uh, you see, the, those, uh, those people you would be the one. They had a saying at that time, the Jews, they would look at the Pharisees who were really strict in their observation of the law. And they thought to themselves, if anybody is going to have eternal life, if anybody is going to be with God, it is those people. And Jesus Christ comes along and He says, no, you are not righteous. No, indeed, you are sinful. What did that arise? What did that cause within them? Well, within them, they move with envy. The something aroused within them. Why? Because of their sin. You see, I think many people would recognize their sin, but no one is as vehemently opposed as someone talking about their sin as those who think they're righteous. Those who already see themselves as a sinner will not be offended if you tell them that you're a sinner. But those who uh, think that they are righteous and you tell them that they're sinners, they are, they are highly offended. And here we read that uh, the, the condemnation is in the world because men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Indeed, the Lord Jesus Christ tells us what is the root cause. If you go back with me to Matthew chapter 15, in Matthew 15... The Lord Jesus Christ addresses the heart and He says, Matthew 15 verse 19, He says, For out of the heart, what proceeds out of the heart? Evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, theft, false witnesses, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands defileth not a man. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees had kind of ingrained in the mind of the people that as long as you don't commit the act of adultery, then you're guiltless. As long as you don't commit a certain act, then you're fine. You're a holy person. You're a righteous person. And Jesus Christ says, no, your heart is desperately wicked above all things. It is from your heart that those things come from, not from the outward manifestation. You see, they didn't like that. We ask ourselves, how do we, how do we sum up our lives before we are saved? How do we sum up the life of the world of those who reject the gospel? Turn with me to the book of Titus. In the book of Titus in chapter 3, we see a contrast between those who are believers and those who, whose life is described before they believe, before they were saved. How do we describe the condition of mankind as a whole? Titus 3, notice verse 1. 
Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. For we ourselves also were. Now, were is what tense is that? Past tense. So he says, I'm encouraging you to live this way because you know how you were before. So how were we? For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, and hating one another. Uh, that is a, a summary of the life of the world. You see, the reason that Joseph's brothers move with envy against him is because when, Jesus, when, uh, when Joseph was uh, revealing this dream, as Joseph uh, stood separate from his brethren, there's something that stirred within them. There's something that likes to hold to the lust of the flesh, that loves to hold to this deception and to the sin. And uh, when righteousness is revealed and when something is said that contradicts the lust of the flesh that is stirred up, the zeal arises and does something that it would not do had it not been confronted. If Jesus Christ had not, well, I know it was, we talked about this, it was predetermined by the counsel and foreknowledge of God that Jesus Christ was going to be crucified, but I'm saying to you that Jesus, if Jesus Christ had never confronted them, He would have never been crucified by them. Just as Stephen would have never been stoned to death, had he not confronted them with their envy. Sometimes we may think, well, you know, I, I, I don't want to arouse anything in people. I don't want them to cause any envy or, or jealousy in them. And I'm saying to you that that's what always happens. And the only way that you cannot arouse Envy in a person who is an unbeliever is to say nothing. And to say nothing is disobedience to God. Stephen had to preach this message. And he shows them that they are just like their fathers, the patriarchs whom they hold dear, whom all of them came from their tribes. One of those tribes, they, they held their history dear. But Stephen shows them that you're just like your fathers. You move with envy. You're stirred up. And so we see not only the declaration of Joseph in our passage, we see the opposition of the patriarchs, they move with envy. But notice with me as we keep going in verse 9. What's the next thing they did? They moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt. This is the condemnation of the patriarchs. This is quite irrational, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's a little steep. Joseph was their brother. Joseph was, in a sense, he was separate from his brethren. He desired to live godly and righteously in this world. He did that which was right. He brought to their father the evil report. God was speaking to him. He communicated what God spoke to him and it aroused in those brothers envy, a passion against Joseph to the point 
where they sell him as a slave. It seems to be disproportionate for what Joseph did. Joseph was not a threat to their lives. Joseph did not say anything or do anything that threatened their, their lives. Indeed, the Lord Jesus Christ never threatened anybody with their lives. He said himself, I, I came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give my life as a ransom for all. That's what Jesus Christ came to do. He came to serve. He came to be the propitiation for our sins. Uh, we know that not only did Jesus Christ do no sin, but the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ went about doing good. That's what Jesus says. That, that is the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. But yet we think about the punishment of the Lord Jesus Christ. We think about the betrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ. We think about how He was treated. And it seems to us as we look at that treatment that it is really disproportionate for what Jesus Christ came. All that He did was teach and preach. He healed the sick. He made the blind to see. He made the lame to walk. He fed 5,000. And no doubt some of those people who had seen those things, some of those same people, cried out against the Lord Jesus Christ and said... Crucify him. And ultimately Stephen is saying that is your condemnation. Just like the patriarch looked at Joseph and they betrayed him. They sold him as a slave. It was unwarranted. He did nothing wrong. So it is with the Lord Jesus Christ. He did nothing wrong. And your uh, uh, punishment of him and your judgment of him was unwarranted. Just like what happened to Joseph. He would tell them by the end of this message. Ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so also do ye. Which of the prophets have your fathers not persecuted? The, the, the answer is none. Why? Because the heart of man is desperately wicked, and when confronted with the truth, uh, it arouses an envy in him, a passion in him that wants to stand against those declarations. But the wonderful thing is we not only see the declaration, the opposition, the condemnation, but lastly we see the salvation of the patriarchs. This is wondrous. Notice verse 9. The patriarchs move with envy the root of them selling Joseph as a slave. Sold Joseph into Egypt, but here it is, but God was with him. God was with him. As a matter of fact, as soon as we see uh, Joseph in Egypt, the Bible repeats again and again, God was with him. God made of everything that he did to prosper. And we find that we read out through, all throughout the life of Joseph, uh, but we read here as Stephen recounts this, and he says, verse 10, and delivered him, God was only with him, but delivered him out of all his afflictions. Now, afflictions would be him being sold, him being falsely accused in the house of Potiphar, and him being forgotten in prison. God delivered him out of that, gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all of his house. Now there came a dearth over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers found no sustenance 
But when Jacob heard that there was corn in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And at the second time, Joseph was made known to his brethren, and Joseph's kindred was made known unto Pharaoh, and then sent Joseph and called his father Jacob to him, and all of his kindred, threescore and fifteen souls. So Jacob went down into Egypt, and died he and our fathers. And so ultimately what we find is not only the declaration of Joseph, and the opposition against Joseph, the condemnation of those brothers because they moved with envy and they sold him, but notice what was the result of all that happened. You remember when Joseph revealed himself to his brothers? He came to them, he embraced them. No doubt it would have been a very strange and awkward moment for them, thinking about the reprisal against them. But you remember what Joseph said? He says, ye sold me into Egypt. But he says, but God sent me. To preserve you a posterity on the earth. What's amazing here is that certainly they would, as he goes through this history, he goes through the life of Joseph... From the moment that his brothers moved with envy based upon his declarations, they betrayed him. But then the end result, the wonderful result, that which is in the mind of God beyond man, man looks back and says this, this is amazing. Uh, uh, What a wonderful work that God had done that even uh, these men in their evil and in their envy, they moved to uh, get rid of the Lord uh, of Joseph. Then God would use Joseph to save those same men. And so it is with the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who move with envy against the Lord Jesus Christ, they crucified Him, they mocked Him. He was hanging on the cross. And if you be the Son of God, come down from this cross. And yet Stephen is reminding these same Jews who crucified the Lord Jesus Christ and say, you betrayed Him. There was no fault in Him. He did only but good, but He did this to save you. Just like Joseph was used of God to save those brothers that had evil against Him. That is what Stephen is trying to show them. That is why Stephen takes Joseph. Not Isaac, not Jacob, Joseph. Abraham, they're reminded about the covenant that God made with Abraham. That in thee all families of the earth would be blessed. And that was the gospel. Galatians tells us Abraham was preached the gospel. And he believed it. And it was counted unto him for righteousness. And now we see that he talks about Joseph because he shows them that the, the workings of their heart, the evil is their heart, is the same thing, is the same heart that was in their fathers. But he's trying to show them that God has even used your evil and your wickedness to bring about your salvation. Now, they're not going to respond to this well. The Bible tells us in verse 39. Or, um, verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. He, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon Him with one accord and cast Him out of the city and stoned Him 
And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God, saying and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. What happened in Acts chapter 7? I'll tell you what happened in Acts chapter 7. If we're trying to paint a picture of what happened. What happened in Acts chapter 7 is exactly what happened in Acts chapter 37. Different way, different story. But that account is singled out by Stephen to show them that nothing has changed in the heart of man. But the wonderful thing is that God has risen above our sinfulness and our envy and He has sent His Son to die for us. What a wonderful God we serve. What a wonderful gospel. And we ask ourselves, well, why did Stephen, who was a Jew, accepted the gospel? And why did those Jews reject the Lord Jesus Christ? I think that perhaps we could put it in two categories back to Jacob. The brothers move with envy. The Bible says Jacob observed the saying. If you're not a born-again Christian today, would you, would you observe what was just said? Would you ponder, not move with envy, not stir up and rise up and think about all the things that you want to live for in your life, but think about what the Lord Jesus Christ did for you and observe it and consider it. The Lord wants to save you. And if you're a born-again Christian, this passage helps us to understand the world as it is. Why would the world reject such a wonderful message? Right? Why? Your sins can be forgiven by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can be reconciled to God. You who are one. Why? Envy. Stands at the root cause in the heart of man. Because man loves his sin. And he wants to stay in it. That is why people reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting that people are not satisfied with just saying, I'm fine, you, you have what you believe, but there's an animosity for it. It's not just a, no, it's okay, I'm okay. No, there's an animosity for the gospel. And the Bible shows us that that's always been in the heart of man. It is not new to the 21st century. It cost Stephen his life. What? The passions of men. Why would we expect today in the 21st century for the heart of man to be any different? The heart of man does not change the responsibility that we have to give the gospel. Some will reject, certainly, because of envy. But some might observe and come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so may the Lord help us to embrace this church history and to continue that same history.